0: thousands of years, man has cultivated the fruit of the Sapindus mukorossi tree to wash their clothes. The emperors of China knew about them. The kings of India knew about them. Now, you know about them. Hedl's Denim Wash is a hypoallergenic and non-toxic laundry detergent made from these ancient plants. Hedl's Denim Wash. Protect your fades like the royalty they are so we're finally here we're actually going to talk about jeans today my name is david chuck i am the managing editor of heddles i'm reed nelson a writer and sometimes editor at heddles it only took about 90 minutes of esoteric background research to get us to the point that we've all been waiting for but it's pants time are you ready ready for pants time let's just recap, I guess, where we left off, that uh, American textiles in the mid-1800s and how the United States is now not only a textile production powerhouse, but also the biggest cotton producer in the world. And what are they making with all that cotton? Denim! Denim is one of the things they're making. And the mills of New England are producing fabric that goes all the way around the U.S. And uh, even a lot of it was exported internationally. Uh, and on a boat trip down across the tip of South America to the West coast to sunny San Francisco and read, what was San Francisco like in the mid 1800s? Uh,
1: it was a terrifying place, David, uh, San Francisco. So San Francisco is actually like kind of originally settled white people wise by Mormons who showed up in like 1846 with a couple hundred people and gave it a go. Not much of a go. didn't really work. Uh, Then by 1848, 1849, they start discovering gold nearby in San Francisco. And gold always attracts the best type of people. Um, And so it basically went from being a couple hundred people in 1848 to being over 20,000 people by 1850. And from there, the population just sort of kept exploding. Although in one direction, there was... By 1855, mid-1850s or so, it was uh, 70 men to one woman in the city, um, which oh, I don't like those odds. They're not great for anyone, uh, like literally anyone. The majority of women in the city were part of the sex trade uh, or sex workers. Um, although because it was so vibrant, you had like actual
0: superstar sex workers – they had like playing cards or trading cards and stuff
1: to some extent. Like, I, I don't know if actual playing cards were involved, um, like not like the gang that couldn't shoot straight, but uh, I, I th- they like there was one named Ah Toy, for instance, and Ah Toy had like her own brothel, I believe, her own peep show, her own service. She used to bring in her own uh, sex workers. Again, I, this is like trafficking is explicit in all of these things. So, um, I feel like I need to mention it every time, but I guess consider this the time. Um, but yeah, so no, San Francisco was dark. It was sort of, it was, it was run by gold, like the gold trade primarily. But it also just became a capital for grifting at large.
0: Just because of all these new, like, rubes that have arrived? For Yeah, for a number of reasons, actually.
1: So in the same year that gold is discovered, England used to send their, like, real, real bad criminals to uh, Sydney, Sydney Town. And the first time they released passengers, or one of the first time, what they would do is they would call them tick- or prisoners. They would call them ticket-of-leave prisoners. Which meant that you couldn't, you could go anywhere in the world. They'd buy you a ticket anywhere, but you couldn't go back to England. And a whole bunch of these prisoners realized that there was gold in San Francisco and had zero intention of mining uh, or panning for gold, but had every intention of just stealing pe- from people who were. So they all went to San Francisco, called themselves the Sydney Ducks, and like terrorized the city for a number of years, would just light it on fire anytime the winds were blowing north. Or south, because they lived at the north end of the city. Um, So the city was being lit on fire like every couple months or so, and like big chunks would burn down.
0: The thing that I discovered is that like a lot of the history of San Francisco in this time period is really foggy conjecture. Because like a lot of people reference the 1906 earthquake and the subsequent fire that burned down a lot of the records keeping that was happening in San Francisco but the city burned down like at least a dozen times before that, like over and over and over again by folks like the Sydney ducks.
1: It was like constantly on fire. And also it was on fire too, because it was like one of the most irresponsible cities in, it has to be in the history of the country. There's this incredible book called Barbary coast who's written, it was written by this guy named Herbert Asbury, who was obsessed with like the underbellies of cities. Uh, he wrote in the early 1900s, early 20th century uh, he wrote Gangs of New York, which Scorsese turned into Gangs of New York. He wrote a book about Chicago, uh, New Orleans, a couple about – me or another one about New York that's like kind of made up. I don't even know. But the Barbary Coast is the most wild, like incoherent ride because also every single newspaper there was being shuttered after like 10, 12 years, whatever, because they would have catastrophic things happen. To, like one time – so – so San Francisco didn't have a government when it first was set up because it was just like gold miners who were moving to, to town to to pan for gold. And uh, this was right at the time when Tammany Hall political uh, machine operatives were starting to kind of get run out of town for the first time in New York. And instead of just being like, I'll take my losses, they're like, let's just go set up Tammany Hall in San Francisco. So they like literally just set up something called Tammany Hall in San Francisco and proceeded to control that city for a few years as well. Um, but like the one of the prominent editors, I think the San Francisco Bulletin was shot by uh, a mayoral candidate who was afraid that he was going to be going to get exposed for all the crimes he had committed in New York, and he so he just walked over to the newspaper and shot this dude on his front porch, waited inside for like three days uh, until a vigilance committee, which is what they called their vigilantes, I guess I don't even they weren't cops. They had no mm-hmm. organized anything. It sounds a lot more legitimate than vigilante. So it, it really does. It's they were pitchforks, but um, and so yeah, it was like it was insane. And so yeah, when you talk about the San Francisco burning down, like they first organized a fire, like a fire station or firefighter squadron. I'm blanking. I don't know why, but it took them a few years to, and even then, it was pretty inefficient. And so, yeah, the city just constantly burned down. It was always on fire. Uh, Very few people had a stake in the city because it was mostly just people coming either into the bay from like long haul, long haul ship travel or people trying to eke out whatever gold was left um, nearby. And so, yeah, it was like, it was a lot of people there. There were some of the most famous people you can find from that day were uh, crimpers, like like Shanghai
0: Kelly. Yeah, what, what is crimping?
1: Yeah, crimping is when you kidnap people and sell them to work on ships against their will, usually doing so when they're completely unconscious. There was one particularly famous crimper named uh, Joseph Kelly, not to be confused with Shanghai Kelly, who would get like 50 at a time. One time he sold a whole bunch of people who had died to a ship. He'd sold a, a cigar store Indian... That was like his famous swindle as a person one time. Um, but this was legitimate business is is the wrong term for it, but like it was pretty accepted trade in San Francisco as well as like opium dens and uh, the red light district was bigger than anywhere, but Amsterdam, they called it the Paris of the West, but it's genuinely confusing how it got that nickname given what I know about Paris and what I know about San Francisco. Um, But at the same time, it did attract a pretty broad, diverse group of individuals. Um, I think by the time San Francisco was like 150,000 people, 10-15% of the city was Jewish, which was a pretty large population, um, which we'll get back to later. The Chinese population was enormous there uh, for good and bad reasons. Um, But there was like – I mean – yeah, San Francisco was the sort of impetus for our I th- I think it's the most racist named law after Reconstruction, just on its name, the Chinese Exclusion Act. You can correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong. That's the one in the 1880s. Yeah, it seems to spell it out pretty hard, but that was sort of in response to to the influx of Chinese immigrants within within San Francisco uh, initially. And yeah, it was it was a really volatile place. There was a huge riot in eighteen seventy seven that got really ugly. That gets glossed over in just about every history book, uh, kind of like the like the civil war riots in New York get glossed over, even in in depth New York histories. It's just like oh yeah, and like thousands of people died in these riots in the eighteen sixties, and then, um, but yeah. So San Francisco was really was a really tough place, and nineteen oh six that earthquake kind of reset it. But until then, it was like every business was either basically a bar, a laundry shop, like a Chinese laundry operation um, that would either send clothes back to China or just use the, the knowledge they had
0: and bring it there. They would send clothes back to China to do laundry?
1: Originally, yeah. It was easier than getting them <laughs> to the East Coast. Because the trans, like, so Transcontinental Railroad isn't – like, you know, Union Pacific hasn't really built their – Built everything out, so yeah, it was just quicker to get the.
0: Yeah, it was just like all of the infrastructure in that town had grown so like it, the number of people had grown like way faster than the infrastructure could, so they were just literally sending their laundry out to another country for it to be washed and sent back. Yeah, it
1: grew faster than like everything, but bars could keep up with like and bars at the time were literal like two by fours um, that were nailed to like barrels. And you could just lean on them. The things that people were known for, like there was this one madam who was also a crimper. When you say it like that, it doesn't sound that bad, right?
0: It's a great euphemism for someone who like kidnaps people into human bondage.
1: Yeah. She was like really notorious for her ability to throw wrenches. So she kept like a verifiable arsenal of wrenches behind like wherever she sat and would just wing them across the bar at people she didn't like all night and then sell those people. Onto a ship and they'd wake up halfway across the Pacific ocean, but these folks, they would get sold in and ultimately they would come back. And a lot of times it would happen like multiple times to people,
0: but they'd finally get back just for it to happen to them again. Yes. And these are like primarily people that have come in, uh, from the, the East coast that are hoping to make it like get rich.
1: Yeah. So primarily East of the Mississippi is, is where they're going to be coming from. But you also had like a whole bunch of wild West outlaws who didn't have like tangible cowboy skills or things like that. And then you also have uh, word travels fast, even I guess in the mid 1800s within like the international criminal community. So you have people hearing about the Sydney duck success and coming in to rival them as well, or join forces Um, also considerable amount of Tong activity, which if you all want to go on a deep dive at home, research Chinese Tongs in San Francisco, that is layered and absolutely, uh, fascinating transfixing. One would say like, Oh, just a true Wikipedia rabbit hole available too. But yeah, so it was a real, it was a real melting pot, um, to use a misapplied phrase. Uh, of people from, from the jump. It was never, I mean, it was men. I guess I should, should also clarify, but yeah. Then the last sort of type of business that, that survived besides like the brothel bar uh, they called them hippodromes was like the combination of a brothel and a bar where you could dance and probably catch a peep show too. um, If you were into that sort of thing but they had these laundry services and then also clothes were a big deal because people would beat the absolute shit out of their clothing in, in no matter what they were doing. Um, and this, these weren't glamorous lifestyles. A lot of folks would just sleep in tents or, uh, in dirty boarding houses on the floor or, um, even on the street. So it's just, they wore their clothes hard and, um, but was spent on their clothes. They'd actually pay for them. So, um, Yeah, people would have stories of coming back from ships with you know like, whatever the equivalent of two hundred dollars is today, and spending a quarter of it on clothing, a quarter of it on prostitutes, then the rest of it just on uh,
0: on booze and opium or whatever else they get their hands on. So the typical budget of any like style forum poster,
1: and when you factor in for the conversion rate, yes, that's what we were looking at like style forum, a little bit less than super future.
0: So, like, it's also, I think, important to note here of, like, just how isolated this was and how difficult it was to get anything there. Of Like, I looked up and uh, in order to get to San Francisco, like, from New York City, the fastest you could get there, like, before the Transcontinental Railroad was about 50 days. And that was from sailing from New York City, like, to Panama and then hiking the, like, 100 miles across the Panama Isthmus before the Panama Canal was built getting another boat on the other side and then sailing up to San Francisco. So like a month and a half um, minimum. And then if you like had something big that couldn't be carted across the uh, Panama Isthmus, it had to go all the way around the tip of South America. And that took about 200 days, which was like six or seven months. Um, So like the level of isolation that you have and like, it's almost like being on the moon. Um, in regards to like being connected to other Western civilization.
1: Except if the moon was, it was a terrifying place filled with like Australian pirates.
0: Hey, who knows if it isn't? I don't think they're telling us the full story on the moon. So this is the environment in which uh, work pants were very well needed and a lot of developments happened very quickly. But uh, before we get there, I think we got to go back and talk a little bit about how pants got to look like pants. Attention blowout listeners, stop by the Heddle shop for a wide assortment of sweaters, knits, and Teamster tees available in the newest colors and styles. Our denim tops and jeans for men's and boys are made in USA and are available in a rainbow of colors at a low Heddle's price. Visit shop.heddles.com and use the code blowout for a special listener discount. So let's back it up a little bit and like what do we mean when uh, we're referring to these like work pants overalls or jeans that were being used by the miners in San Francisco uh, and were so like highly prized by people that had to you know, toil in the muck all day. And the entire concept of pants as we know them is something relatively recent in like the late 1700s, early 1800s. So the, the sailors that we were talking about in episode uh, one were uh, they were wearing were called trousers, which like I saw a lot of funny spellings of that of like T-R-A-U-S-E-R-S or T-R-O-W-S-E-R-S, which, you know, I think is. A- the, the lack of
1: consensus on spelling historically is something that I almost miss like I wish we had today where you could just kind of go with with what you wanted. It's like, you know what, today I feel like spelling trousers with a W.
0: Tomorrow, I'm going to give a Z a shot. I don't care. There's no squiggly red line that's going to tell you you're wrong. Like, these are the things that we miss. And it's like, if
1: you have a disagreement with an editor, you can challenge someone to a duel, but I don't think anyone's going to go out on a limb over, like, the spelling of Trousers. It it just does, as someone who likes to write, uh, it does seem kind of fun.
0: So, like, Trousers back then were these, like, Capri-looking things that stopped just below the knee and were very wide and baggy, sort of like... Kevin Smith or like John Cena shorts, um, also made out of denim.
1: Roughened um, it all rough in, in 2006, but not on a tennis court.
0: Very much that energy. But like those trousers, you know, like the Revolutionary War founding father things that like, uh, like people would wear stockings underneath is very separate from what would become to be known as overalls, which were mainly protective clothing that evolved like out of stuff that you would put over your feet and calves to protect them while you were like either stomping around in the muck or riding a horse. And those were first called spatterdashes dashes or kneecaps were, uh, the things that like I, I saw reference to, which were these like side buttoning gator things that would protect you, parts of your leg, not covered by the trousers while on horseback. And, some of those even went all the way into being like sold into boots that they would like have a like leather, like sole to them. And by the 1750s, these eventually extended all the way from the shoe up like to the waist to protect everything below the navel. Like waiters sort of like waiters, but uh, they hence the term overall because they like were over all of your things below the waist. But these are like, these are like overalls of booties, right? Some of them had booties, but not all of them did. Were the booties in demand or were you
1: like, it was like a rolly backpack.
0: I think it was just like dependent upon your, uh, circumstance of using them. Um, that like the, the first reference to overalls was in the American revolutionary war that I could find where like the continental soldiers had to have linen overalls for summer and wool overalls for winter. And, These were sort of exclusively, uh, a protective clothing to be used while during dirty activity, which included mining for gold. Um, so this is like, you know, like primarily protective, like work gear and what we would today call jeans, which like back in the day in San Francisco, they were calling like waist overalls or work pants. And like those went all the way from the waist, typically down to the top of the shoe. And they had a cinch in the back belt for sizing and this like V notch at the top of the back of the waistband uh, where the fabric from the yoke came together. So they could be tailored pretty easily to allow for size adjustments based on when you had been crimped or not. <laughs> and uh, they had no belt loops, but they had suspender buttons, which I saw that miners like often didn't use. They just like tied a rope around the suspender buttons to keep the, their pants up because they didn't wear suspenders. Um, and they had two like lined pockets in the front as we would recognize them. Um, but they were often made of the same material as the pants. So if you had like duck canvas pants, uh, they would be made like the, the pocket bags were the same material as the pants itself. And they had that like watch pack, uh, watch pocket up by the waistband and then one patch pocket on the back, um, like right of the wearer. So these were exclusively work pants and seen as protective equipment at the time. And there are like some photos uh, of larger company mine locker rooms, like later in the 1800s, that would show men would like leave their jeans at work in the locker room of the mine and wear their own pants home. So it like was not something that a lot of people were wearing their jeans out and about.
1: Were these like like the knickers or did they have like, like were they just like rocking Long John's home?
0: No, they they'd wear like, I don't know what they wore home. That's a, that's a good question. The only thing that I'm looking up is jeans. Independent miners like often didn't have that many pairs of pants because like where would you put them? They would just have the one pair that they would wear until they were destroyed. But a lot of these like company men would leave their jeans at home and then like or leave their jeans at work and then wear their own pants home, which naturally evolved into something similar to what we would consider pants today. Also, got a shout out. Uh, Jeans of the old West by Michael Allen Harris, an incredible book that is very, very well researched and has a lot of this information about what these jeans like looked like and the men that wore them. Um, highly recommend As this is like a lot of samples in this book were actually recovered by Michael Allen Harris. That he was a guy that did like a bunch of mind diving, still does a bunch of mind diving to recover these old jeans. Um, I have a link to that in the description.
1: You're saying mind diving very casually. Um, is that like when you go into shut down mines?
0: That is the thing. Yeah, it's uh, they're like a few folks in the U.S. that go into abandoned mines and like the trash shoots of mines to pull out these old jeans from the 1800s. Yeah, it's like that's honestly worth more than the gold that the miners were wearing or were mining with, like the pants that they threw away after they were done with whatever mine they were uh, trying to. Uh, to stake a claim to, um, yeah, there's a guy down here in, um, Durango, Colorado that I've uh, hung out with a few times and like gone and seen all of his, um, like warehouse full of stuff that he's recovered. And he's had a couple pairs that he sold for like upwards of $40,000, um, that he's found in a mine.
1: Holy shit. So the, the, I was going to say, this is a question I could basically ask you and very few other people. Cause you lived around old mines. Have you been in one before?
0: No, I really want to, but like, I'm terrified to do it with, not with someone who knows what they're doing. So I I went to high school in a,
1: f- a defunct mining town in Utah, um, with a lot of closed mine shafts and we did not call it mind diving. We usually called it smoking weed and drinking alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. when we would go into those mines, they are very scary. When we found a couple that had like we could get into, um, that is yeah those things are bizarre there's yeah they used to run a tour in utah uh, in park city of one of the old silver mines you go like down into it for a while and they sold it but
0: oh yeah i've I've been on a couple here like outside of denver like uh in the mountains there are a few of those and like there are a couple like abandoned ones that you can see if you're hiking in more remote areas and like i've done the thing of like you go like, I don't know, five feet past the entrance and go like, this is spooky. I hate this. I want to get as far away from here as possible.
1: Yeah. Oh no, I haven't explored. Like I haven't gone into like, like gone more than probably a couple, like less than a football field. Way less than a football field, like half a football field.
0: So big ups to these dudes that are willing to dive into these mines and pull out this stuff so we can have books and, you know, talk about it uh, from the comfort of our homes.
1: Do they like, so they like repel in, I'm guessing.
0: Uh, or there's like, there's ladders and stuff. Cause like the, most of the recovery that from what I've heard from Brit is done from, uh, the, the trash shoots that typically when they would make a mine, like the, the miners would dig down into the earth, like, uh, a few hundred feet. And then they would dig another thing right next to it. That was like a hundred feet deep. And then when they were done, they would just shove everything of the camp of that mine into the trash shoot and like cover it up and leave. So the one that you want to actually excavate is the trash chute because that's the one that has the jeans and like the like old whiskey bottles and the tents and blankets and things like that. We got to get this guy out of pod. Oh, yeah, that, that that's coming up. Wonderful. But yeah, I mean, that's like sort of the state of what pants were at the time as we uh, are going to be describing them. That uh, it took a while to get to that point, but these are still like not jeans in the way that we would conceive of them today in terms of like the way they were used. It was, you know, like uh, when you see like people who are sanitation workers wearing like the reflective, like heavy, like full body suit when it's really cold outside, like that's the equivalent of what, how jeans were considered back then. As we're talking about like the, a lot of the people that came here to strike it rich uh, during the gold rush, like they weren't people that were here to actually mine gold. The people that got rich were mostly folks that came to get rich off of the miners. Um, As you mentioned, Like San Francisco and these areas of the American West were still incredibly remote. And the need for things like hardware and clothing, like work pants, as we talked about, all had to be sailed around the tip of South America to get there. Um, And there were a bunch of people that set up shop in the 1840s and 50s to capitalize on all these miners that were coming through. One of which was... Loeb Strauss. <laughs> and, oh, uh, oh, it's just fine. <laughs> one of which was Loeb Strauss. And, like, Loeb, uh, was one of many Jewish families that, uh, fled persecution in Europe during the pogroms to start a new life in America. And his family set up shop as dry goods retailers in New York where he started going by Levi. Levi Strauss is just Got thinking it. that, uh, Levi Strauss, we could have all been wearing lobes jeans. But um, in the, you hear a lot in this era of people talking about dry goods sellers, and like, what exactly does dry goods mean? And uh, yeah, it's typically consumer goods. You know, it's just like anything that's not wet as dry goods uh, entails.
1: It's just like it's incredibly literal. It's like the it's like the company Bic. That sells lighters, razors, and ballpoint pens primarily. They have three markets cornered that have nothing to do with each other. Disposable yeah. razors. Yeah, like I, I genuinely didn't realize that like flour, coffee, and sugar were also dry. So is wet goods just like live th-
0: something that was living? Uh, I guess like produce, like uh, like butchered stuff, um, like I don't know. Um, like beer, whiskey, things like that.
1: Were there people that walked around being like, I'm a big wet goods guy?
0: Maybe, but that just sounds, that sounds icky. I'd much rather have dry goods like uh, attached to my name than wet goods. It's like,
1: yeah, like it's like, yo, I, uh, I have a warehouse full of dry goods sounds okay. It's like, if I have a warehouse full of wet goods, I'm like that. No, I'm staying <laughs> away.
0: Formerly dry goods, now wet goods. There was a leak in the roof. Oh, man. So, yeah, dry goods is basically just like anything you could imagine buying in the Oregon Trail video game of like clothing, textiles, tobacco, like uh, pickaxes, like stuff like that.
1: Before someone got scarlet fever and had to be left on the side of the trail. Yeah.
0: Whatever you could fit in a wagon. Um, so in 1853, like uh, Levi's family sent him west to join his sister's family in San Francisco to get it on the gold rush action. And there he got into the dry goods business and he was selling work pants, fabric, other goods, like pretty much all of it imported from the East coast. Um, which as we mentioned, still had to take a trip of like six months to go around Cape Horn and get to San Francisco, which was also difficult for like logistics. Cause like when you had to place an order, like it also had to go all the way around to get that information there to say that you wanted these things. So there could be like a six month lag, um, or up to a year lag of like sending the message back and then receiving it. Uh, the, the goods that you ordered.
1: Leave someone on red for an entire season.
0: Yeah. It's like, I mean, can you imagine like ordering something online these days and it taking six months for the order to get to the store and then another six months for it to actually arrive. And that's like, if they did it, th- that's, that's same day shipping. <laughs> It's like,
1: look, we have a really good turnaround rate. Uh, we try to get everything out within 48 hours, business hours, um, 72 on the weekends. Uh, you can expect a tracking number in your email anytime and your package by uh, 2021.
0: Mm-hmm. Six to eight months, either either direction. So Strauss like did very well for himself. And by the 1870s, he had a decent business uh, and became a respected member of the San Francisco community. Which we think because like a lot of the uh like Levi Strauss discourse is controlled by Levi's. So like there if he was a you know uh horrible racist and like philanderer and like beat his kids and stuff, like you you know they would just bury that stuff. <laughs>
1: Levi Strauss, yeah, the saint of San Francisco, according to Levi Strauss.
0: Yeah, I, I, I'm not here libeling Mr. Levi Strauss, but I'm just saying, like, if uh, he was that kind of person, there is no way that we would know about it.
1: And I, to be totally fair, I don't think the world could handle that. There's too many, there's too many, like, just red tabs on the asses of the world.
0: His name truly, is way too far distributed. To
1: truly reckon with the fact that like he could have not been good. Like it, it was a tough it's a tough thing to be a, a, an upstanding individual in San Francisco. But like at least he didn't own a bar, as far as we know. You know, because like <laughs> if you owned a bar, you were crimping. Because it was like yeah. crimping the way that history San Francisco history books make it sound like was like brunch. Like it's like, what are mm-hmm. you doing on Sunday? It's like I don't know, maybe grab a drink, crimp a little bit. <laughs> working on the weekends, working from <laughs> you know, home, <laughs> you know. It's like I figured, figured I make up for some lost time. Yeah, so it's I just don't think we could handle it. I'm I'm okay with Levi Strauss like being like the, like like the saint of San Francisco. Like I like in, in our heads, he he can be feeding all the all the people who had just term- come back from being crimped and uh, outfitting them with, with well-priced,
0: well-made goods. Mm-hmm. With anti-crimping helmets? You know, Not as
1: effective as you would have liked, but uh, the effort was what was, what was noted it's most. Something. At, at
0: least someone who was trying to crimp you knew you, were, uh, you had your wits about you. Yeah, he used like a quilted
1: fabric, kind of like in the movie Leatherheads that George Clooney made that no one seemed to like. April mm-hmm. release about football. Yeah, I don't know. It just I I choose at this point where it's like Levi Strauss seems good. It's like okay, that's fine. That's fine. We can move on f- from for now. Yeah, we can cancel him later. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure,
0: I'm sure. We'll find find cause. But meanwhile, there was another industrious immigrant from Eastern Europe, who went by the name of Jacob Davis, and uh, Davis like similarly like left uh, Latvia. In his twenties, whereas like uh, Levi Strauss left Bavaria in his twenties, also I think to escape a pogrom. Strong Latvian for- be a name, Jacob Davis. Yeah, Jacob Davis. Whoever knows what like the beginning, like his original pre Ellis Island name was. Right. My um, my mom's
1: uh, grandparents was Raskilnikova before it just got slashed to Raskin.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah. Good old Crime and Punishment name.
1: It is Raskin.
0: Davis landed in uh, New York in 1854, like Jacob Davis, and began working as a tailor. And then he also got the uh, head west young man bug and bopped around following the gold rushes in California and Canada, also as a dry goods seller. And uh, by the late 1860s, he was in Reno, Nevada, following the Eureka gold rush uh, nearby and selling tobacco and again plying his trade as a tailor. And a customer requested he make a pair of pants as strong as he possibly could it goes that this was a woman requesting like pants for her husband because she kept busting them and she had to repair them. So he put copper rivets on the stress points of the pockets of these pants like he did with the horse blankets. Um, and also just to note that the horse blankets at the time were more like horse jackets you would find on a spoiled little dog that I looked up pictures of horse blankets and uh, they're they're very, very cute. I take offense to the spoiled dog
1: comment as a dog owner with with clothes
0: these riveted denim work pants were super popular or also duck work pants. Like no one really knows what the first pair of pants was. And Davis got like hundreds of requests. He made like about 200 pairs of riveted work pants. Um, and fearing that he'd get ripped off, he wrote to his fabric supplier for help in getting a patent. And, uh, like you said earlier about the, uh, funny spellings back in the day, this, this letter we've, we uh, Got the text of it, and it is uh, a prime example. You, you ready for it? I'm ready. Okay. Uh, I will, for everyone's sake, not put on a Latvian accent to read this. <laughs> um, My neighbors are getting jealous of these success, and unless I secure it by patent papers, it will soon become to be a general thing. Everybody will make them up, and there are will be no money in it. Therefore, gentlemen, I wish to make you a proposition that you should take out the latter's patent in my name, as I am the inventor of it. The expense of which will be about $68, all complete. And for these $68, I will give you half the right to sell all such clothing riveted according to the patent. Which was an extract from Jacob Davis's letter to guess who? Levi Strauss. Levi Strauss, correct. My favorite,
1: my favorite spelling is Yellous, spelled Y E A L O U S E.
0: He added that E at the end, just like that's cocky, and I like that. Jacob Davis, like it's, it's funny. In researching him, he had a lot of other patents, so it wasn't like he couldn't get the patent on the riveted pants. Um, that he had one for like a corn, um, husker, like a corn de sheller type thing that you put like a corn kernel in and it would like pop the. Cr- uh, the little like um, skin off the corn kernel. Uh, And he had a few other weird patents like that. But uh, he saw the use in getting Levi Strauss to help him with this patent, because uh, in order to have a patent, you don't just get the patent, you have to like fight for the patent. And if you don't defend your patent, which takes a lot of money in court, like the patent becomes null and void. Strauss saw the potential for this and they went into business together with the deal that he hired Jacob Davis as the foreman at the workshop that would produce these riveted work pants. And they got the patent for riveted waist overalls approved in May of 1873. And the rest, as they say, is denim history part four. So the, the next time we come back, we've got, uh, what I've been terming the, the 17 years war of when, uh, The patent for riveted pants was in effect and uh, everyone else had to come up with like other kooky ways to secure their pants because like rivets was obviously just the correct decision. But yeah, that is uh, coming up soon. And yeah, we finally did it. We actually talked about jeans this episode. We got to jeans. I hope you are proud of us. And now that this uh, need has been scratched, you will tune in for the next episode where we actually... Talk about more genes and how they developed into things that we look we like. We don't today. talk about genes ever again. We will never. no more genes. This was the jeans last. Are over. So that's it. My name is David. I'm Reed. And thank you for tuning in to Blowout.